This week on the Tech on Tap podcast, we invite the co-founder and CEO of Honeycomb.io, Charity Majors, to talk about DevOps, going serverless, and testing in production. Welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast with Justin Parisi and Sully the Monster. I love NetApp. Oh, yeah. Hello and welcome to the Tech on Tap podcast. My name is Justin Parisi. I'm in the studio here with uh, Josh Atwell. Hi. Hi. I start with Josh this time. I feel honored. You should. You're the, you're a special guest. I'm just glad you remembered my name. Joe Shatwell. Yeah, that's the one. <laughs> that's the one. Are, are, are you mad at me? I don't know. No, what are you talking about? Why would I be mad at you? I don't know. I have nothing to be angry about. Can, do you have anything to tell me to be angry about, Andrew? Not today, no. Okay, cool. We'll get, we'll move on then. So, hi, Andrew. Hello. How's it going? It's it's good. Good. Yeah. You, you look t- really relaxed, you Andrew. Do. I just want to like point a that out. like a giant load has been lifted off your shoulders. Every day's a holiday. Every day. Every paycheck of fortune. Every meal a feast. Hey, man. Paychecks don't always come from the same place. Just saying. So, um, on the phone today we have Charity Majors, uh, Twitter celebrity, and. CEO of Honeycomb IO. So, hi, Charity. If you could tell everybody uh, kind of a little bit about yourself and what you do and how to find you on social media. Totally. Um, I am the co-founder of Honeycomb.io. I I come from operations engineering. I've been on call since I was seventeen, which is over half my life now. Um, is that counting the on call for your parents, or? God, sorry. <laughs> I didn't, so, no. <laughs> Uh, no, I've been on call for computers uh, since I was 17. Um, and, um, you know, I feel like the I've kind of made a career out of being the first or very early infrastructure engineer once a product is a real thing. You know, I really am fascinated and I love the, the part where this beautiful computing theory kind of meets the messy real world. That's my niche. That's what I love. I love fast growing um, I love data problems. I've also been a DBA. I, oh, I co-wrote the book uh, Database Reliability Engineering for, for O'Reilly um, with Lane Campbell. Um, I come from databases. Um, I, I'm not a monitoring kid. I've never, I've always hated monitoring. I don't think visually at all. Um, give me text said grep or give me die or, or let me die because I can barely construct a graph to save my life. Um, and yet um, I find myself as the um, CEO, accidental CEO for a company that is trying to change the way the world thinks about how we understand complex systems because the world is getting very, very complicated, very scary, and the old ways no longer work for many of us. So what is Honeycomb.io? What is that? It's, um, well, I, I would describe it as distributed GDB uh, or what happens when monitoring ends. Uh, if you ever used a Datadog or New Relic or something and you know got up and started really easy and then you just wanted to ask a question like, oh, this graph is great, but I want to know this for one user. Or, cool, I have a top 10 list, but I'm pretty sure that what I care about is number 15. Um, it's, it's to answer questions like that. Any arbitrary question about anything that's happening in production right now. So what sort of um, back end is it, does Honeycomb.io use? I'm like, what, is it just like a, a user interface that interacts with other things? Or, I mean, is it, you know, well, what exactly? Well, we had does... to write our own storage engine. Now, I've spent my entire career telling people to never write a database. So I'd like to be very clear on this point. We have and not written a it. database. Oh, no, it would be good. 
we have written the storage engine. <laughs> it's totally, totally different. <laughs> uh, it's a columnar store. It's written in Golang. Um, it's as dead simple and as fast as we can make it because we target like one second for the 95th percentile uh, for all queries. So like the, the origin, the genesis of this thing, um, I was at, I was the first infra engineer at Parse, the mobile backend, like Heroku for mobile um, a few years ago. Um, and I was there through the Facebook acquisition and on for a couple of years after that. Um, and around, I think it was 2013 um, was when we got acquired. And I was around that time coming to the horrified realization that we had built a system, 60,000 mobile apps on it, that was effectively undebuggable by some of the best engineers in the world. Uh-oh. Um, yeah. Like, uh-oh. Like we had an SRE team. We had a backend engineering team. Both of these teams were drowning like not a lot of requests but like every day one or two people would write in and typically it would go parse is down and i would be like parse is not down like behold my wall of beautiful green graphs like we're up we're good check your wi-fi you know and arguing with your users i highly recommend it you usually convince them that they're wrong um it's funny because i say the same thing about dbas <laughs> arguing with them right and so, the network guys and the network guys it's, it's always, always the firewall Always. So like I would go and start investigating or I dispatch someone and go figure out what's wrong. And because we were a platform, we let them upload their own queries. We just had to make them work, upload their own JavaScript. We just had to make it work without messing up anyone else who's running on the same hardware. Um, it would take hours, if not days, to track down what the root cause was. There were just too many possibilities. And I was using all the right tools, right? Um, I tried every tool under the sun. And the only thing that finally helped us get out of our this this horrible situation was this but ugly tool that Facebook had invented like 10 years ago when they were drowning in their own MySQL problems. It's just um, it loads data in memory, lets you slice and dice on any dimension, any combination of dimensions in real time. And the key thing is that they can all be high cardinality. So and then when I say high cardinality, I mean, like, imagine you have a table of 100 million users. Uh, what's the highest cardinality? Well, it's going to be any unique ID, unique request ID, social security number, whatever. Um, first name and last name are going to be high cardinality, but not as high. Low cardinality would be gender or, or presumably like species, right? Very low cardinality. Well, all of our monitoring tools are built for low cardinality data. This tool at Facebook um, blew my mind because it let you break down the high cardinality column. So like you could select for a user and then any combination of, you know, endpoint, latency, percentile, uh, request, normalized query, whatever that you wanted. It's like pre-generating all the graphs in the world, um, except you don't have to pre-generate them. You just ask the question. So like our time to resolve these incidents, I'm almost done, I promise, dropped from like hours or days to like seconds and I moved on. And then when I was leaving Facebook, I hadn't really thought about it since then, but when I was leaving, I suddenly went, oh, crap, this has become so core to my sense of engineering. This is how I engineer. This is how I understand what's happening in production. This is how I understand the consequences of what I've done. This is how I figure out what to do. I, it's like going back to flying blind. So um, I couldn't stand that thought. So Christine and I started a company to basically build it, uh, but better, because this is a terribly hostile tool. <laughs> it's not fun to use the one at Facebook. It hasn't been maintained at all. So we wanted to aim much higher than that. 
That's cool. And one of the things that's really interesting, so I have a really strong ops background. And one of the things that I always learned was that anytime I was on call, I'm going to be the one that gets paged when mm-hmm. people have no idea what's going on because I had the best macro level view as the virtualization yeah. engineer and architect, right? And You're so, the debugger of last resort. That That's right. And so I would get on these calls and in, in my, let's see, gosh, four years in large enterprises, only once was I paged and it was actually a system that I was responsible for <laughs> that I had to repair and fix and make apologies for and then and resolved it. Um, and, and when we got into the analytics, we ran into the same type of problem. Like everything that yep. we started doing from an analytics standpoint was a very macro view. It was very difficult to get into like an individual. And the way you yeah. just described that really makes me think about like watching a movie like The Fast and the Furious when they're like, oh yes, we isolate their cell phone, their, here's their telemetry, here's the yeah. transactions. And I'm like, yeah, right. But yeah, it sounds yeah, like right. you're bringing that to a reality. Yeah, very much so. Um, there are so many problems that are hard, hard problems when all you have is dashboards and your intuition, right? Like people like you and me have been this missing leap between the people who are developing the code and trying to fix anything, right? We have like all these battle scars and the scar tissue that we've built up that lets us just look at a dashboard and just leap to, oh, it's Redis. Like, just trust me. I know, you know, I know what I'm talking about, Um, which is, it's fun to be that hero. It's super fun to be that hero, Um, but it's not good for the team. And it's Mm -hmm. not good. It's depressing to be someone who joins a team and knows that they can never beat the the debugger of last resort is the person who's been there the longest because they have the most context stuffed away in their brain. Like you're not, the tools that we've had in systems land have not given us the ability to ask these questions. So we've just had to like reason about it in these complicated like representations in our head. But the thing is that like systems are becoming so complex that we can't keep them in our head and we shouldn't try. Yeah. It's, it's gotten increasingly difficult to be the outage whisperer, right? Yeah. You just know it. You, you just have a feeling on where the outage came from. Um, yeah. So you know, as part of this complexity, and you know, I, I know a- Andrew runs into this space a lot. As as we move into containerized applications, distributed applications, mm-hmm. it seems you know, in like microservice frameworks, I mean, it seems like this type of technology is like indispensable in, in yes. being able to have awareness and visibility in what's happening in these in these new application frameworks. For- for sure. Like when we started doing this, we thought this was just a platform problem because of the platform. It is so key to understanding anything, the ability to break down by that one in 10 million user IDs and then understand what the world looks like to them and their events. Right. Um, but pretty quickly we realized, no, this isn't everybody problem because people are hitting this, this cliff and Many different things can lead them there. Sometimes it's containerization and orchestration. Sometimes it's Kubernetes. Sometimes it's having lots of storage engines. Sometimes it's microservices. Doesn't really matter. There comes a point when your tools just stop working for you and you start throwing bodies at the problem or degrading your your concept of what is good enough service for your users or building tooling in-house or, you know, there's been this panoply of approaches. And I think that part of it, part of the reason that this hasn't been done before Um, except at big companies, is that we're kind of blinded by our 20 years of monitoring and metrics. And I don't say that with disrespect. Like, we've built up 20 years of great best practices and tooling around monitoring. But everything around, you know, the metric, a metric is a single number, right? It's devoid of all context. Anytime a request enters your system, you may, you know, use 50 different metrics, but they're not tied together in any way. They're not an event. They're 
they're completely isolated. And then to group those numbers together, we re reintroduce tags, right? Well, your cardinality is going to be limited to the number of tags you can have, which mm -hmm. is 100 to 300. So a lot of people start out by monitoring and they make a tag for the host name. Then they get 300 hosts and realize, oh, crap. <laughs> Well, these are, these are VMware, and these are containers, and these are web in, front end, and these are database back end, and now you've got all these tags, and you still don't exactly know how all these things connect together. Right, right. And so, like, metrics are really good at, and, and, and we aggregate, right? For efficiency, we aggregate at right time. Well, these metrics are great for giving you a high-level bird's-eye view of the health of the system. But what you actually care about as an engineer or as a debugger is the health of the, the event, Right? Every end-to-end -end request that comes into your system, you don't actually give a crap about um, the health of the system, ideally. That's infrastructure's fault. Right? You can have, you, if you're in AWS, a third of your nodes can be down. If an AZ goes down, you should never notice. It should be fine. What you do care about is asking questions like, uh, will this user throw a parse? Say Disney writes in and is complaining, parses down. Well, Disney does eight requests per second with their mobile app. We do 100,000. That is literally never going to show up even as a blip on any of my mm -hmm. dashboards, right? What I need is the ability to break down by first Disney and then any question that I want to ask. So how is this information then presented into, um, I guess, into a, to an organization's response team, right? Mm -hmm. To the engineers or the NOC or like how, how do they engage in, in this platform? Yeah, so we recommend that you know you instrument your code. That's the best way you get inside the system and have it explain mm -hmm. itself back to you, right? But we don't care. It just has to be structured data. Um, what we what the best pattern is is usually people have legacy monitoring stuff, so that's great. You trust it, you know. But as soon as you get page, you want to jump into something that's interactive, something where you're asking questions. We think of ourselves sometimes as BI for systems, you know, business intelligence yeah. for your backend systems, um, you know, and it. And in, and in BI, you don't start with a handful of dashboards and like flip through them trying to figure out which one describes your current problem. You ask a small question, you know, and then based on the answer, you ask another one and you just go where the crumbs take you. And it's both not very hard and it sounds kind of terrifying and open-ended to people who aren't familiar with that if you're describing it. And you're like, well, I don't know where you're going. You just have to see what the results are, you know? So it's not very hard. Um, you just, you know... You'll take whatever dashboard or graph is, has the problem and you start slicing and dicing and sorting and, and the answer rises to the top. Um, we also have, have tracing. which is, So tracing is the only other event-oriented debugging tool that's emerged over the past few years. Um, and a trace is just a type of an event. So with Honeycomb, you can actually flip back and forth between tracing, which is sort of depth-first description, and regular events, which are sort of a a breadth-first search. And it's really powerful because we've been doing this with our storage engine for three months. And imagine, you don't really get great bug reports from users, sadly. What you get is a symptom. Mm -hmm. You get a description of a symptom. And so you just have to, have to stop, start at the top and go, all right, I'm going to try and isolate. Oh, okay, here I found an event that I think is an example of the symptom. So then you trace it. And it shows you exactly like where the t hop is timing out or where, you know, whatever problem. And then you can zoom back out and go horizontal again and say, okay, now who else is seeing this? Who else is impacted by this? Um, but that sort of teasing and playing and becoming familiar with your information, I think is key to un everybody 
is now a distributed systems engineer. And distributed systems just require a higher level of operational um, uh, literacy. Uh, you, you need to get used to looking at your code after you ship something, looking at it. Did what I expected to ship actually ship? Is it behaving the way I expected? Um, does anything else look weird? Is just like a best practice with monitoring is you should never have to look at your graphs. Uh, your, your system should inform you whenever it's time to go look at something that's broken. Exactly. Well, things break in such subtle and strange ways in distributed systems. Like it's possible that your uptime is like 99.5%, but that means that everybody whose last name starts with, you know, SHA is on a shard that's a completely down. And you can, you know, so the edge cases um, aren't always represented in the same things that we're used to looking at. And we just have to get used to exploring. For people like me who aren't like graphically inclined, um, this is why it's always been really important to me that we, um, that we integrate. We're building for teams, right? We're not building for individuals. We're always talking about how do we bring everyone up to the level of the best debugger, the best subject matter expert in every area? Like, I learned Unix from reading other people's batch history files and just trying all the commands, right? There's something so powerful about like just tapping into that sense of curiosity and that wanting to see how an expert does things and, and in, in the process, really leveling up yourself. Like if I get paged about, you know, uh, something, I'm like, oh, this looks like a Cassandra problem. I don't know anything about Cassandra, um, but, you know, that's kind of Christine. She knows that really, really well. And didn't we have an outage like four or five weeks ago, last time she was on call and she dealt with it. So I'm just going to go look up like what questions she asked the system, ah, um, okay. what she thought was meaningful enough to attach a comment, post it to Slack, anything that got attached to a postmortem, you know, because typically the same kind of problems tend to recur and just looking at how an expert has done it and having that part of that brain available to you is, is, is awesome. Also, like we forget so much. If I've been debugging something, I'm an expert in that part of the system for like a week, right? And yep. then it starts to decay. And two months later, I've forgotten most of the things I ever knew about it. Um, but if I have access to my brain, like how, if I'm interacting with my systems in this way every day, I can go back and look at what it was that I, how I was interacting with it. And I just amass this arsenal of like shortcuts that take me to within a few clicks of the answer every time. Yeah, I mean, that, that sounds really helpful because my my next question was going to be uh, you know, let's describe the people that use this platform and how they use it right if we're trying to normalize expertise yeah. and, and make it to where no you know, we're trying to normalize literacy literacy yeah exactly so that you know you, you basically are training people to think differently and how to you know, identify and resolve or identify those issues and, and that behavior to resolve them and, yes. and do it in a way that's scalable Oh my gosh, yes. it's, it's like that every IT exec is, is like clamoring for this. Yeah, it shouldn't feel like you have to learn a second job, right? Right. It should just like be there. You should be getting your own, you should be completely focused on your own job and just getting it done. And we just kind of subtly help you, you know? It shouldn't feel like you are suddenly an ops engineer as well as a software engineer. We are building mostly for software engineers, but it's more this concept of a software owner. And this, this is, you know, these are ops people as well as they are devs. But, like, to me, software ownership means people have the ability to write software, um, the permission to deploy it and roll it back, and the ability to debug it in production. 
which doesn't mean SSHing in, right? That doesn't scale either. But using something like Honeycomb to just look at the effects of whatever you've just shipped and through instrumentation, explain it back to you. So, you know, you were talking about how, you know, you ask questions that, you know, Christine had asked and you're trying to use commands that other devs have used before. It kind mm-hmm. of makes me think that it's something that would tie in nicely with a machine learning methodology, right? Yeah. And in fact, everybody asks us, well, are you going to do machine learning? And we kind of, we feel like the entire industry is jumping right over the what does your team think part and going straight to the AI stuff, um, which is kind of unfortunate because while machine learning is both good and awesome and necessary and is going to be very powerful here, right now it isn't really offering the payoff that people hoped because false positives are incredibly expensive um, because um, because you can only train on your own corpus of data, right? You can't just have like, you can't have a tool that's trained in somebody else's system and then comes and makes sense for yours. It's very custom, which means you have to be a system of a certain size and you can't change any faster than a certain velocity. You know, there are all these just like kind of built in issues that make machine learning, I think, much less powerful than just the power of your social network right now. That said, everybody's question is, can you tell me what to look at? And for a while, I tried to talk them out of that. And then I realized, no, 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 they're right. Um, I can tell them a lot of things to look at. Um, and the key here is not to think of it as a data problem, so much as a design problem. You know, I show them the right information, and their eye is drawn to the outlier. I'm not choosing information to not show them. So we're starting to invest in that stuff. You know, like after I've deployed, did the rate of change change drastically for some of these things that I care about? You know, so that we're kind of learning over time how to how to make this um, smarter. But we very much are. We are a tool and a philosophy that. Um, believes in enhancing humans and humans in the driver's seat, not replacing them. Yeah, and I, I think most of the research that I've read around AI and machine learning has really focused that the success is going to be on exactly that, enhancing the you know the capabilities of humans and and what they can accomplish, and and especially when you look at complex systems. Because, and I'm curious how Honeycomb IO handles this as well. Um, one of the challenges that I've always seen is that. Uh, once you get a bearing on a complex system and have a general, you know, I guess, feel or a touch for what that the system's behaviors are, uh, as soon as you add something new to that system, you completely mm-hmm. change the dynamic, which can completely change the way that you need to manage and operate and, and respond to that system. Yeah, for sure. Um, so the pattern we were talking about, how the debugger of last resort is usually the person who's been there the longest. Um, I've now seen at three companies places where that wasn't true. Um, and that was, you know, Parse, Facebook, and Honeycomb. Because when you're taking all this information out of our heads and putting it in a system where others can explore, um, suddenly the best debugger isn't the person who has the most scar tissue. It's usually the person who is the most curious and stubborn and just likes exploring. And, and I think that I bring this up again because I think it ties into what you just said too, which is, we are so used to leaning on our internal representations of what the system looks like that it throws us when that system changes. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you're used to asking questions of a system that's outside your head, you know, it's kind of like your outsourced brain. Like, remember when we used to memorize phone numbers? Yeah. <laughs> right? Well, who cares about those bits anymore? Like, they're all in my iPhone. I don't have to think about it because I know where to find them. Like, this is the impact of, of like, moving the data of your, about how your system operates into a tool that you can rely on that captures this level of detail, suddenly you don't, you don't feel the need to remember things in the same way. 
what it, you do build up um, kind of a map of the system, but it's more an exploratory map. Like, I remember what action to take here. I remember what direction to go. I know how to find the answers, which is a different skill set than I know where the bodies are buried. I used to remember IP addresses. I know, me too. <laughs> I still days? remember my first IP address, 199.181. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I, I think the only thing I still remember are credit card numbers. It just yeah. comes in handy when I'm trying to buy something on a mobile device. That's pretty. Yeah, that's same. pretty good. It's not. It's like you know, very secure. You're not writing them on notepad and pieces, so that's good. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. this. It's this. Was it CSV or the CVV or whatever? That's the one that you you got to really protect. Oh yeah, yeah, because yeah. that makes all the difference. That, that makes those three numbers. Yeah. No one can guess those. That's right. We we start with sixteen and then we ruin it with three. <laughs> so true. Um, so so charity, like from uh, from a customer standpoint, like what type of environments are you finding people getting the most benefit from Honeycomb? I, I mean, I can see lots of broad impl- implications and and ways to adopt that. But where where are you seeing your your yeah. biggest earliest successes? For sure, our challenge has always been narrowing in on something enough to resonate and deal with with a very small team. Right, mm-hmm. um, microservices have been a huge tipping point for a lot of people um, where. It just, not, their old tools just don't work anymore and they know it and they're kind of frustrated. Um, microservices have been really, really successful gain for us. Kubernetes is also, um, when we started out kind of building for ops people because we assumed that they would be the most interested in this. So we built this long tail of integrations for various things and we slowly realized it's the people who identify more as software engineers, even if they are very infrastructurally um, sound because nobody's been building for them other than like New Relic. You know, which is great, but has no limitations. Um, so we're we're like in terms of who it's software owners. You know, people who really take pride. The two biggest things that we have discovered we can ask people that will predict whether they will be great honeycomb customers or not are number one: are there software engineers on call, or do they want to put them on call? Um, because that shows that they're hungry for this sort of ownership model, mm-hmm. right? And number two: can they summon the engineering discipline to structure their log lines? And this is a bar that I would never have guessed would weed out so many. We've had customers who, you know, container customers <laughs> who for a, for a year could not summon the engineering discipline to structure a single one of their log lines. Um, and that to us is a very much a, you must be this tall to ride this ride. Yeah, I can because, see that. That, that you know. presents a whole different level of complexity into the into the system when you can't have any continuity in the the data that you're ingesting. Yeah, and especially I mean, when you can control the format and the framework yeah. of that data. Like, come on. Yeah, I know exactly. But I get. It. I mean, I, for whatever reason, lots of people can't, and those are not our customers. Sure, Andrew, are you were are you one of their customers? I am not. <laughs> Oh, but he could be. I am not be. responsible for software, thankfully. Ooh, and lucky I, person. I say, software owner. I say thankfully for the people who consume our software. Yeah. Andrew is not a developer. And Andrew is not a developer, but he speaks to a lot of developers, as does Joshua here. Yes. Can I call you Joshua? Yeah, absolutely. As long as you're not the IRS. <laughs> so, um, you know, we. I also want to talk a little bit about this concept of serverless. So how does that tie into Honeycomb I.O. and what you're doing today? Um, it's, it's mostly just that people who are using cutting edge methodologies um, tend to be looking around for newer approaches to understanding them as well. Um, you know, at our API, we're completely agnostic. If it's structured data with the right key, we can take it. We don't care. Like, it can be arbitrarily wide, which is why we could tie so many data points together and say these are all describing the same event. 
Um, we've had found a lot of traction within serverless because um, it's very, you know, it's event oriented. So they know that they care about instrumenting at the level of the events. Um, they're using all newer languages, you know, JavaScript, GoLang, et cetera, which we support really well. Um, and because serverless is very, um, you can't, you can't really do like a staging serverless environment. Like it, the tools are, are both newish and the model doesn't really support um, it in the same way as traditional software development does. So they're very big on investing in testing and production, which. Whoa, whoa. Red button. <laughs> Red button. Hey, I, 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 I always right. test in production. Well, I do too, but my production's a lab. <laughs> oh, mine's not. <laughs> So, okay, so tell us a little more about this this dangerous concept, or is it that dangerous? So I get why it's gotten a bad rap. And there's that very funny meme, you know, I don't always test, but when I do, I test in production, that we've all laughed about, where it kind of implies that you can only do one or the other, right? Um, and I absolutely agree. For all your known unknowns, if you know about it, test for it. Cool. Um, to me, saying, yes, I test in production is simply the acknowledgement that there are a lot more unknown unknowns out there that I can't test because I don't know about them. Um, so rather than deny that fact, put my head in the sand, say I never tested production, I choose to embrace it. And I think that that's important because we all have a limited number of engineering cycles. And when we say we don't test in production, um, we tend to spend all of those cycles on trying to make staging work or trying to make mm -hmm. it match prod, which is not possible and not desirable, and it's just a black hole for engineering time. Instead, we should be investing a substantial number amount of those cycles into hardening and resiliency and guardrails, as they say, and investing in things like feature flags so that you can ship your code and then gradually turn it on, maybe for internal users first and then for you know the rest of the world, silly, for canarying and like staged rollouts um, and for observability, for actually being able to check and see if what you thought you shipped, you actually shipped. Um, and I find that the state of release engineering tools is, is dismal in this industry. And I think that it's because those cycles have been starved because they're all being thrown at, you know, the staging environments and this, this notion that we can somehow not have any unknowns and unknown unknowns in prod. Yeah. And I, I think when you, when you think about, the, the real reason for not testing in production is the number one response is, how do we make sure we don't do that outage again? If only there were a product in the market that would allow you to easily dive into that and <laughs> diagnose the behavior. If only. A, if only. I, I, <laughs> you know, I mean, I could see we could open up the floodgates to I testing know. in production. You know, I, well, would, call, I would call it um, honey bear. <laughs> honey bear? I, That's cute. I think yeah, I think that would would work with like a little yogi yeah. character. Yeah, I could go for that. <laughs> but observability has been a missing link here. Like the reason that like I tried putting my software engineers on call like five years ago, and I ended up unticking them from the on call rotation because they were so frustrated because they they had to do two jobs, right? They had to learn yep. the entire op stack and all the monitoring and all the everything as well as their their own job, and it wasn't reasonable. Um, I think that something like Honeycomb, I'm, like I'm not just shilling for, for me. I'm trying to change the industry. I'm trying to say we need more tools like this. Yeah. We need to raise the bar of what we expect from our systems. When you have something like Honeycomb where software engineers can take a, an approach that's native to them, which is instrumentation of their code, um, and kind of you know 
uh, use instrumentation for like observability-driven development in a way where you build the instrumentation first and you use it kind of like a headlamp. You always build a few feet in front of yourself and you check yourself at every step. Um, you can put them on call and it's not frustrating, it's empowering because they have both the ability and like the resources to make the changes that need to be made. There you have it. Charity Major is shilling for the world. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I, world I sub- shiller. I, I support her 110%. If I could do the extra 10%, I would support her an extra 10%. An extra 10%. So yeah. funny thing, um, we, we talk about testing and production and all, and how, you know, that might be a no-no or it's dangerous, but we happen to have that, that flex clone technology that allows you to test in production without any real impact because oh, nice. it's a clone of your production yeah. code. Badass. And it's not related to your actual source code. Like that's that's you know the production stuff, and you can test on it. And then when you're done, you destroy the clone, and you're 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 good. But yeah, I digress. Marketing hat. That's off. awesome. Marketing hat off. No, well, that's good to know. I bet a lot of your users don't know about that. I had to. T- I had to say it. I had to do it. <laughs> it's, it's almost like his job depends it's on. Almost it. like, it's almost like it's the NetApp Tech on Tap podcast or something. <laughs> yeah. Whatever. So, so charity, what's what's next then uh, with Honeycomb IO? I know you mentioned machine learning, but is there uh, is there another path forward that that you're you're looking as part of your your mission for the world? Yeah. So honestly, like we just launched our first stab at tracing, and we want to really invest in this so that it doesn't feel like a feature or an add-on. It should feel like two sides of the same coin. It should feel fluid and and intuitive, um, and it should just it. Should, Tracing has had two big obstacles, right? Number one is the heavy cost of instrumentation. And number two has been learning it. Like every place I know of that has tracing has like one one or two people who know how to do it. And it doesn't extend beyond that. Well, because of the way we think of problems socially, um, Honeycomb has this really great ability to spread within an organization and it gets a lot of adoption. So I think that we can use Honeycomb to teach the world how to do tracing. Um, the other thing that I'm really investing in besides machine learning is design. Um, now I come from backend infrastructure and I can say that I want, you know, consumer quality design, but that's like kind of a pig saying it. Like, I don't know how to do this stuff at all, but I am so convinced that our tools need to stop treating us like, like engineers and start treating us like human beings and, you know, get out of our way and just help us be better at our jobs. So we've invested and some really great world-class design um, from Microsoft Research. And I'm going to basically put our engineering teams like at their disposal because <laughs> I really want to nail this. I want it to be intuitive. I want it to feel like, you know, oh, what was that? Kathy Sierra wrote, wrote this great book and she compared it to like, she's like, you, camera manufacturers are mistaken when they try and build the world's greatest camera with the best features, they should be trying to build the world's best photographer because that's what makes people fall in love with their tools. That's what makes them, you know, it embeds its way into your heart and you can't imagine doing your job without it is when it just quietly, you know, makes you better at everything you do. Oh, I love that. Um, so I, I actually had a thought that I was I was curious. Uh, it seems like with with the technology from Honeycomb I, that it would have really cool capabilities with like a chat bot where you can just simply say, Hey chat bot, you know, honeycomb bot, like what's going mm-hmm. on with such, like in, in just normal yeah. text, like what's going on with X, Y, Z. Can we call it honey bear? <laughs> honey bear. <laughs> you bot. know what? That might be amazing. We've talked about doing a bot like this a few times because ambient awareness is another thing that we're about to start looking at. Like how do we know when our systems are having problems without wanting to get paged about them all the time? Right. Um, so, I love that. 
I love that. We have a lot of Slack integration, and it would be good for that to be bi-directional, right? Yeah, I'd be like, hello, Hal. How are the systems yeah. today? <laughs> yeah, my new BFF. <laughs> Hal the honey bear. Hal the honey bear. Oh, my gosh. See, every every oh. episode we have somebody on, I give them a great idea that they can market their product with. That's Has fantastic. anybody ever followed up with you saying that it was a great idea? Uh, in my head, yes. <laughs> okay, we can roll with that. I'm I'm all the greatness in my head. So, yeah, anyway. I, dig, I digress. <laughs> <laughs> so, Charity, I want to learn more about Honeycomb IO. Uh, where can I find you on the web, well, at events? Like You're at luck. Um, we just, yes, we're actually doing OllieCon, which uh, by the time this podcast cast goes up, it might be too late. It's August 2nd. Uh, Ollie is short, shorthand for observability. It's going to be really fun. Um, we're also on Twitter, Honeycomb IO. But if you want to learn more about Honeycomb, I recommend going. We just shipped this thing. It's really cool. If you go to play.honeycomb.io, we actually loaded um, – we do blog posts every time we have an outage. The last one was a database-related outage. So we did a full blog post where we did all of our recapping and what happened, et cetera. Well, we also just took all the data from um, our API server for the duration of the outage, and we imported it into a sandbox that you can play with without having to sign in or anything to see if you can find the clues, see if you can find the breadcrumbs that helped us figure out. This was a pretty hard problem to, to find. Um, so you can just go play around, and it kind of walks you through using the UI um, and tells you, you know, some things to try. But it's really fun. We've had a lot of good feedback from people who found it really entertaining and fun to play with, so I recommend going there first. Yeah, I saw you post that, and I thought that was incredibly savvy. Like that's just that's just cool. To, Everybody loves yeah. a good train wreck. <laughs> yeah, no, especially in this industry, because I think we, to your point, we all have our scars. We've all gone through this, and and we're all looking for better ways to um, develop fewer scars. Yeah. I don't know. I just kind of like to pick up my scars repeatedly. Oh, jeez, can't take <laughs> you anywhere. You know, you can't. <laughs> All right, Charity, thanks so much for joining us today and giving yeah. us the input about Honeycomb IO. Absolutely. Um, feel free to use Honeybear. I yeah. will do that. I'm thanks. releasing, I'm releasing the uh, trademark to you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. I'm going to sign off now then. How can we find Thank you on Twitter uh, if we wanted to find you? Oh, Mipsy Tipsy for me or Honeycomb IO for Honeycomb. All right. Thanks. All right, that music tells me it's time to go. If you'd like to get in touch with us, send us an email to podcast at netup.com or send us a tweet at NetApp. As always, if you'd like to subscribe, find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher or via techontappodcast.com. If you like the show today, leave us a review. On behalf of the entire Tech on Tap podcast team, I'd like to thank Charity Majors for joining us today and talking to us about Honeycomb IO. As always, thanks for listening. Oh, yeah. Is it just me that's getting off on this? Oh, yeah.